morning again. Everybody awake? All right. A few announcements. Um, one of the things I took away from our meeting last Sunday was that we probably need to do a better job up here of just letting people know what's going on. So, uh, first announcement is after church today, we're going to be demoing a few of the bathrooms in the back. Uh, Brenda made a big pot of chili. If you're not going to help demo, please help eat the chili because it's a big pot and we don't want it to go to waste. Um, and I don't want to eat it for the next four or five, six days. So it's going to be next door. Um, we've got some weeds to pull, so if you want to feel like you need to earn your bowl of chili, then you can pull five or six weeds and consider yourself worthy of a bowl of homemade elk chili. Um, next, don't forget we have men's study on Wednesday mornings at 6.30. Efren does a really good meal for uh, the men. And women's study is on Monday nights. Are you meeting this Monday? You think so? Yes? Okay. And is whose house, who's hosting? Mars is still hosting? Okay. Uh, and then Wednesday, not this coming Wednesday, but the following Wednesday night, we're going to start a study on the book of Galatians. Uh, we just got done with a book by Francis Chan uh, about the Holy Spirit. Now we're going to start uh, getting into the book of Galatians written by Paul to really get a deep understanding of uh, faith and the law. Uh, and lastly... I got a phone call yesterday from a good friend of mine, uh, someone that's discipled me for a lot of years, and he called me because he was really excited about the Super Bowl. And he's not a big football guy. I mean, he watches with, if the Broncos are playing, he, he likes the Broncos because he's a native, lived in Colorado a long time. But he was excited because uh, there's a campaign that's being put out there by a group of uh, Christian people that they're calling it He Gets Us quote unquote, and it's about Jesus. And so they've raised or they're spending about $100 million for two ads during the Super Bowl. And it's supposed to depict, uh, I watched a little bit on a CNN clip, uh, supposed to depict who Jesus is and how he understands us from the political spectrum as well as the social spectrum. And, and the goal uh, is to reach young people because young people are leaving the church in droves at high percentages. And so the goal of this campaign in this group uh, is to get the message of, of Jesus out uh, during one of the most watched sporting events, you know, that we have in a, in a calendar year. And uh, I read this article on CNN, and it didn't take long for the article to start to figure out ways that this is hate speech. Uh, and they really dig really deep on who are the supporters, who are the funders of uh, this campaign. And then if there happens to be a group that... Uh, goes against legislation for LGBTQ and uh, abortion, they are linking that in and grouping at, that in um, as hate speech. And so they have interviewing people about how evil this potential ad is going to be. And so I, rather than, I'm not advocating going and spending four hours watching the Super Bowl. I'm not saying don't. I'm just not saying do. What I'm saying is to recognize that in Ephesians chapter 6, we see a very clear message from Paul uh, that we are in a spiritual battle and that we are in a war uh, between good and evil. And if you don't believe that that's existing today, then your eyes are closed. Really wake up and recognize we do have a, a major battle. And that battle is for the souls of our youth and, and our souls. Which kind of leads us into what we've been preaching about uh, the last five, six, seven weeks, which will continue on, and that's the Sermon on the Mount. And 
Uh, last week I started with that concept um, that I believe it's a universal concept, not just spiritually, but physically, emotionally. Uh, and that's the, the concept of you reap what you sow. And one of the reasons why I love this Bible so much is you can look at the Bible and you can read it as the perfect instruction manual for our life. We can look at it as something that God has given us a love letter and he's, he's basically saying, I'm going to give you instructions on how to live so you can live a happy life. Not a uh, bump-free, uh, hurdle-free, wall-free life, but a happy life. You can understand how to get through some of the struggles that we all deal with just living in a fallen world. And the, the context and the teaching of the Bible is when we sow obedience to God's Word, we, we reap the blessings that He provides for us through uh, His teachings. And I don't think certain things like the arbitrary, I don't think it's an arbitrary command to forgive one another. I believe the Bible is very clear about that, and it gives a couple reasons why we forgive one another. The first one is so God will forgive us. The other, I think, it's so we can have a peace and a joy that transcends all understanding. It's not just for the person we're forgiving, it's also for our personal growth and our personal uh, enlightenment, if you will. And I think the same thing goes with the Beatitudes. As we look through the Beatitudes, uh, we sow obedience in applying, these in applying these teachings, and what we, what we reap are the blessings that come from it, because he, Jesus is bold in saying, blessed are they who, blessed are they who, when you reap certain things, or when you sow certain things, you're going to reap uh, certain things, and so my, my goal this morning is to continue on, on the Sermon on the Mount, specifically the Beatitudes, and really look uh, hard at this, but I, I want to read through them again, and we've read through the, the, the Beatitudes every single sermon that we've preached on the Beatitudes, and that's intentional. It's not to uh, reiterate over and over and over because you get bored of it, but it's so hopefully you can commit it to memory because I do believe that when we look at these individually every single day and we focus on whatever the beatitude is for that day and we, and we learn from it and we take it to heart and we heed it and we apply that to our lives, we get the benefit from it. And that's why I believe this Bible is such an awesome book is uh, this old man that I knew long ago in a church a long ago said, Bible stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. You've heard me say that's an acronym, basic instructions before leaving earth. And so we look at this and we're bombarded with the ways of the world, we're bombarded with doing things this way, and then we go back to the word of God and say, oh, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want the kingdom of heaven, therefore I want to be poor in spirit. Uh, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I want to mourn. I want to mourn over my sin. I want to feel bad for my sin so that I can be comforted with the word of God. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I want to be gentle. Uh, I want to be humble. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And I can't get past the story of Justin climbing up to the top of this hill and then the next bench and the next bench and I could, I could, I could feel my mouth drying up as he's telling the story. And that's the type of thirst that God is calling us to. He's calling us to thirst for righteousness and when we thirst in that way, we will be satisfied. And then finally, the, the verse that we're going to be going over again today for the second week in a row is, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy. That word mercy uh, in the Greek is eleo, which means to uh, have compassion. That's what he says. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are those who have compassion, so they will receive compassion. That word compassion means sympathetic pity and concern for the sufferings 
or misfortunes of others. That's what the word compassion literally means. A sympathetic pity and concern for the sufferings or misfortune of others. So this morning we're going to discuss some of the examples and the opportunities we as Christians have to be merciful to our fellow man. But first, I want to look at some more scriptures from God's Word. I mean, last work we looked at Manasseh and we saw how God was merciful to the king of Israel, Manasseh, even though he was evil and he did some extremely evil things. When he turned and, and, and faced God again and repented of his sin, God restored uh, him back into a place of leadership. Uh, if you go with me to Exodus 34, and we see in Exodus 34, and some of you, I'll make more pages of notes last week. I ran out this week. I guessed incorrectly. Uh, I was trying to be a good steward of my ink and my paper, and so I printed out 20 copies of notes, and I should have printed out 25. So next week I'll do 30. If there's extra, then we can have notes on the back for the following week. In Exodus 34, starting in verse 6, the Bible says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Look at that verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God of merciful and gracious, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. If you look back just four chapters, or two chapters, and you go to, we'll start, and we can go back 14 chapters and go to Exodus chapter 20, and God, very clearly, the Lord gives these commandments to Moses. And in Exodus 20, the first two commandments, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. So the top two commandments is you, you shall have no other gods before me and you shall not carve an image, a graven image in my place. Well, if you go to Exodus 32, after God had released them from bondage, they had witnessed the miracles they had crossed through the sea. In Exodus 32, Moses goes up to the mountain and the nation of Israel decides, we need someone to worship. We don't see God. Moses is gone. So they fashion a golden calf in his place. And you go two chapters forward and that's where it says, the Lord came before him. This, uh, the Lord, a God, of mercy, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and faithfulness. I can't, nobody can fathom being God. We, we, we just, we don't have that ability. But we can fathom being humans and having maybe authority over our children. And when you give your children very clear directives, very clear directives, and they willingly, in your face, disobey, it's frustrating. It makes you angry. Or, well, it makes you guys angry, not me. I would never get angry at my kids. I just, 
as I'm trying to wrap my mind around this concept of mercy, and I, and I look at these scriptures about Manasseh, about what he did was so evil, he sacrificed his own children to a false god. And God had mercy on him. The nation of Israel disobeyed God constantly, 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 and God continually showed mercy. So I look at these examples, and I read these scriptures that say in Deuteronomy 7, Therefore know that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Psalm 86, Psalm, But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in mercy and truth. Lamentations. I read Lamentations, the, first, the, first, the beginning of Lamentations chapter 3, and I don't know if you've ever read Lamentations 3, 1 through 20. It's not a pretty picture. Jeremiah is lamenting, saying he has been forsaken, he has been, uh, he has been dropped, he has been forgotten, he has been left. I mean, it is a very, kind of a sad book when you, just, when you read it. Let me just read a couple of verses so you can hopefully understand 22 and 23, but at the beginning it says, how lonely, I'm in the wrong chapter, sorry, Lamentations 3, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath, he has driven and brought me into darkness without any light, surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long, he has made my my flesh and my skin waste away, he has broken my bones, he has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation, He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. It continues on like that for 20 verses. And then in verse 22, he says, no, in verse 21 it says, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope, colon. I have all of these things that I'm looking at as negative and painful and hard. And then he says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I don't know. I, I've read this verse in my grandma's house on the, on the plaques. You know, it's got the clay and it's stamped in there. And I would read this book and it says, oh, your mercies are new every morning. But if I look back in the first 20 verses, I look at that and I go, man, th- this this." Jeremiah was lamenting about some very painful, he has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. That's what Jeremiah is saying. And then he goes, oh, but his mercies are new every morning. We see constantly throughout the Old Testament of the nation of Israel being disobedient to God and then the nation of Israel repenting to God and God saying, come on, I got you. There's a a passage in Mark. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus sends out His apostles. Starting in verse 7, he, he called the twelve and he began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts. But to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, you know the teaching, if anybody asks for your tunic, give him your cloak as well. 
So what I would do is take two, and if someone gives, says, can I have your tunic, I'd say, sure, here's my tunic, but I still have another one. Then if I see a group of bandits coming, I would put my tunic away so they didn't see it, and then I would put it back on after we passed them. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. So the apostles were given charge by Jesus to go out into the world and teach them about him and teach repentance. So after they go out and do this and they cast out demons and they anointed with oil these people that were sick and, he, and they healed people. And then John the Baptist is beheaded by King Herod and the disciples heard of this and they went back to uh, John and they took his body and they, and they laid it in a tomb. And then they went, in verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. So I want you to put yourself in the place of the apostles. They had just spent who knows how long teaching uh, the people around uh, Jerusalem and teaching where, wherever they were at this point. Sorry, I didn't look that part up, but the, it says they went to his hometown. Uh, so they're in Nazareth, and they're teaching. They come back to Jesus. They return to Jesus, and they told him all they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. You must be exhausted. You have just gone out proclaiming my name. Some have accepted your word, some have not. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. They were hungry. They were tired. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Verse 33. Now many saw them going, not, not the many, I'm assuming, are the crowds that were, saw, were watching the disciples, the apostles. Many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them got ahead of the apostles. When they went ashore, he saw a great crowd. I'm sorry, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. When I'm reading the scriptures, I'm attempting my best to put myself in the place of Jesus or the apostles or whomever is in the story. In this case, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Instead of forgetting the people, instead of saying, not interested right now, I need to go attend to my apostles, I need to go attend to my disciples, instead of doing that, Jesus took the time and he took the energy to teach them, to show compassion on them, to show mercy on them, because they were sheep without a shepherd. I wrote here, and I underlined this because I didn't want to miss this part of it. How many people do you suppose out there are like sheep without a shepherd? Think about it. Your neighbors, your coworkers, your clients, the guy at the grocery store, the guy that cuts you off in traffic. How many people are out there are like a sheep without a shepherd? This is where we're going to get a little bit of practical application here. It's easy to read this story and go, well, Jesus had compassion on them and he taught them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. But remember, blessed are the merciful, blessed are those who have compassion because they will be shown mercy. 
they will be shown compassion. And I confessed to the church body last week that one of my struggles is compassion. One of my struggles is mercy. It's like if you're having a problem, again, pull your boots up and just take care of it. Just get it done. You can do it. You can do it. That's my personality. And that sometimes causes me to not be as sympathetic as I should be. But I would look at Jesus, these crowds coming to him, wandering lost, hearing about this teacher that has the words of eternal life, and he takes the time, he's exhausted no doubt, his apostles are exhausted, and he takes the time to do what it needs to be done by feeding them, the rest of the story is he's feeding them, and to give them the information they need for eternal life. And there's no doubt that people were in that group that were there for a free meal. There's no doubt there was people in that group were there because the crowd was there and they wanted somewhere to hang out. But there were also people in that group that became his disciples for the rest of their lives. And the reason I think this is applicable is because of our human nature, it's easy to look at certain people, no matter what those people are for you, it's different for everybody, and not put the effort and energy into them, even though they are sheep without a shepherd. And the only way I could relate it was through my baseball coaching. That's the only way I could relate it. So, in high school, you have to try out for a baseball team. You go before high school, and you have Little League. And that Little League is, uh, as long as you're 14 or under, you're going to get two innings in the field and at least one at bat, right? Isn't Isn't that the rule? But you get to high school, and the coach has the ability to end someone's playing career. You will no longer play baseball because you are not good enough to play here. And so every now and again, we get players that come out to the baseball field that are not quite up to speed, meaning they probably can't walk and chew gum at the same time. Um, they're, un- they're uncoachable. And I don't mean because of their desire. I mean because they don't have the physical God-given talent to do the skills necessary to be successful in whatever sport it is, in this case, baseball. They don't have the mental ability when you teach them that you've got to really turn that backside as hard as you can when you're hitting, and they still swing like this, and they don't turn the backside. And you could teach them time and time and time again, and they never get it. And I've seen movies where there's people like that that come out and they're not good athletes and the coaches ridicule them, they mock them, and they say, get out of here, you're, you're, you're cut, you're not part of this team. And so when I'm, I'm thinking about how to have mercy in my practical life, in my daily life. So I look at these kids. I have one kid in particular that I'm thinking about. And I think, I don't, I don't see myself um, turning this kid into a player. He's, he's, never, he's never going to play an inning for our baseball program, I don't think. He's a, he's a danger to himself, and he's a danger to other players. And I'm all about winning. Isn't that what we should be about? At all costs, we should win? Well, that's not my philosophy in coaching. My philosophy in coaching is character development. My philosophy in coaching is God has given me the opportunity for this young man to come in and he he has a hard time just holding the bat properly and catching a ball and fielding a ball. But my job 
as a Christian is to take this person and get him closer to the king. That's all my job is. My job is to not help him become the next whoever professional baseball player because he will never get there. That's like me becoming an NBA center. It's just not going to happen. But I can develop his character. And so when we have compassion, when we have sympathy, it gives us the opportunity to look at other people and say, how can I help them get closer to the king and recognize that God-given ability that this young man has, this one doesn't. But there's something that God created him to do in the kingdom. There's something. And we're going to find out what it is. Maybe it's maintenance crew. Maybe he's the head maintenance crew. Maybe he's the backup statistician. Maybe he's the team manager. I don't know. But he was created in God's image. Because tossing people aside, because they don't fit into our expectations that we have for others, it's not mercy. Mercy is looking at people and God, how God created them and using their gifts to influence the church, to influence people, to influence the kingdom of God. And when I look at Luke chapter 6, it says, Therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Be compassionate, just as your Father also is compassionate. And sometimes we can look at this concept that mercy is just apathy. And that's not what mercy is. If you look at the mercy of Jesus, you look at the compassion of Jesus, what did Jesus say to the woman that we talked about last week? That last week? Go and sin no more. He could have followed the Mosaic law and had her stoned to death, but instead he said, he who is without sin casts the first stone. Now, has anybody condemned you? No, they're all gone. Okay, good. Go and sin no more. Get up. Go and sin no more. That is mercy. That is compassion. And when we look in the body of Christ, we see some very direct teaching. If you go to Galatians chapter 6, and I actually did bring a commentary that I, I like the way this was put, um, and I'm going to have to read it. I left the book at home, so I, I don't like doing this, pulling from my phone, but I'm going to, because I left the book at home. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, I still hear pages flipping. Galatians chapter 6, uh, 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens... This is talking to the Christians at the church in Galatia. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This commentator says this, Paul knew the problems that arise in any Christian society. The best of men slip up. The word Paul uses, so immediately when you hear that, the best of men slip up, some people will hear, oh, it's a license to sin. We're talking about that in our men's study. Oh, license to sin. We can go do whatever we want. But the word that Paul uses here is the Greek word paroptimo, paroptima, and it does not mean a deliberate sin, but a slip as might come to a man on an icy road or a dangerous path. Now, the danger of those who are really trying to live the Christian life is that they are apt to judge the sins of others hardly. There is an element of hardness in many a good man. There are many good people... There are many good people to whom you could not go and sob out a story of failure and defeat. 
They would bleakly, they would be bleakly unsympathetic. But Paul says that if a man does make a slip, the real Christian duty is to get him on his feet again. The word he uses for to correct is used for executing a repair and also for the work of a surgeon in removing some growth from a man's body or in setting a broken limb. The whole atmosphere of the word lays the stress not on punishment but on cure. The correction is thought of not as a penalty but as an amendment. And Paul goes on to say that when we see a man fall into a fault, we do well to say, there but for the grace of God go I. As I've been reading the Beatitudes, and I've been reading them every week. Every week, I'll read them again, I'll read them again, and I'll read them again, and I'll just contemplate in my heart. Am I poor in spirit? Is my heart genuinely poor in spirit? Do I recognize that I have nowhere else to go but to God? Am I at such a broken state? And if I answer no to that question, then what I reap is not the kingdom of heaven. Is that too harsh, Steve? If I look at this passage, it says, blessed are those who mourn. And I haven't genuinely mourned my sin. And I haven't genuinely got down on my knees and said, God, I've failed and I need you. If I haven't done that, am I going to be comforted? Is that too harsh? If I look at blessed are the meek and I stay prideful and I don't reach humility and I don't reach a gentleness that comes from the Holy Spirit, am I going to inherit the earth? Is that too harsh, brother? When you look at these beatitudes, brothers and sisters, I'm, I'm, now I can get off my notes because now I'm feeling like I'm starting to preach finally because the first 20 minutes I didn't, I feel like I was reading notes. When I look at these beatitudes and I, and I study them and I just go, am I hungering and thirsting for righteousness or am I spending an hour a week thinking this is enough? Because if that's the case, are you going to be filled? You see, these are promises from God. My brother turned 50 five days ago. They're visiting. They're driving through. Uh, they're heading up to Breckenridge for a couple of weeks. And uh, I was given an illustration by a client. And he got a tape measure. And he pulled out the tape measure. And he said, the average lifespan for a white male, Efren and Donaldo, you guys are safe. I'm not. 73.2. You're going to live longer than me. Unless you're African American, 68. But 73.2 for white males is the, the uh, lifespan. And he just turned 50. So I pull out that tape measure. I put a line on that 50. And I said, you've lived, you were born on a Thursday, February 8th, 1973. I wrote this on the tape measure. I said, you've lived 18,266 days here on earth. 
there's a red line that runs through every single year, and it stops at 50. And I have a line. And I said, technically, according to stats, you have 22.3 years left here on Earth. What are you going to do with it? What legacy are you going to leave? Is it going to be... Is it, going to act, is it going to be like the first 50 years? Or is it going to change completely for the better? Is it going to change for the worse? But we look at this, I, I look at this tape measure when this guy did this. I've been scratching my head since he, he gave me this illustration. He gave me and Dave this illustration and he put it out there and I gave it to my brother. And my hope is, my hope and prayer is that my brother looks at that and goes, I, I got to be better i got to be better when it comes to following the word. It may not. I don't know. Because he's not here listening to it. They had to get up to the mountain. They're not going to be caught in the church building right now yet. It's coming. But you guys are here. And when I read these passages, and I think of, blessed are the meek, I think of Donaldo. I think of a gentle, humble man that I can look up in the church and say, I want to aspire to be meek like Donaldo. That's what's called working out your salvation with fear and trembling. But if you ignore the passage, if you don't look at the passage, and you don't study the passage, if you don't hunger the passage, if you don't thirst for the passage, how are you going to be filled? Does that make sense that we're looking? I mean, this is practical application. We read these, we come to a sermon, we listen to a guy preach for a little bit, and we see these and go, yeah, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. But are you meek? Are you genuinely humble? Are you gentle? Do you genuinely thirst for righteousness like you haven't had water for two days and it's 100 degrees on the mountain? Do you hunger and thirst for it that way? Or is it, I'm kind of thirsty, you want a glass of water? Eh, maybe in like 10 minutes. Is that the level of thirst? Or is it, I got I to gotta know what this means. Because the blessings that we have here are promises from God. That's what we've got to understand. These are promises from God. You want to inherit the earth? Okay, here's how you inherit the earth. You want to be comforted? Okay, learn how to mourn. And you go on to say, you want to be pure in heart? If you are pure in heart, you're going to see God. You want to uh, be called sons of God? Become a peacemaker. That's going to be a fun study. That'll be a fun sermon. You want the kingdom of heaven? You're going to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. When I see these, brothers and sisters, and I see passages like Ephesians chapter 4, when it's talking about practical application, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Or in Colossians, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against the other, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tenderhearted. Be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, 
but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. It is promise after promise after promise in the New Testament. You reap what you sow. Some people don't like that. I've met people, I've talked to people that said, you know what, no, no, no. You reap what you sow. Like I said, there's a reason why God says, do this, sow that. Do this in order that. And so we're, we're, we're 60% through the Beatitudes. We have three more Beatitudes left to go. And the question is, is this hitting home? <laughs> are, are you looking at this going, how do I mourn? Have I mourned? Am I meek? Am I hungering and thirsting for this? Am I poor in spirit? I mean, look at these and just say, is this me? And when I look at the church body, and I see that we're called to love each other through this, I, I recognize that we cannot drag someone down the path of righteousness. It takes two people. Both have to be walking together. You cannot drag an unwilling party. I remember years ago at a church I was preaching at, the lady came up to me and said, Honey, I think you want salvation for people more than they want it for themselves. Yeah, well, maybe. You can't drag people down the road to heaven. They have to want to go down there, and we can help them get down there. That's why it says to carry each other's burdens, to help each other through that process. You see that in Acts 2.42. There's this beautiful story, the 3,000 were added to their number that day, and it says that they were dedicated to the, uh, they were dedicated to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to the fellowship, and to prayer. And then you see how they were one in mind and one in accord, and it says, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. If there was a need, they filled it. And that was mercy they were having. That was sympathy. That was compassion that they had on other people. They didn't look down at other people and say, wow, they weren't given the same gifts that I was and therefore I'm better than them. They're wired differently. They're built differently. They're built differently with different gifts. And God's saying, you want to have mercy? You want to be shown mercy? Recognize that everything you have is a gift of God. Everything you have belongs to God. You are just a steward of those gifts. And have compassion on someone that you see in need and fill that need. As we walk through the, these these remaining Beatitudes, I'm going to challenge, I'm going to challenge you guys. Dustin, you're probably not going to be here next week, you'll be back, back home, but I'm going to challenge you, Matthew, man, read the Beatitudes, read all eight Beatitudes, read them once a day, memorize them, think about them, ponder them, it'll change, it'll change the way you look at people. I promise it will. It's changed the way, I mean, it's, it's like God is constantly right now. I'm so grateful that God laid it on our hearts to go through this sermon. I'm so grateful because God daily 
He's daily working on me. He's daily saying, uh, I got to tweak this. I don't worry that I'm not saved. Don't get me wrong. But what I am worried about is I want to be the most I can for God. Because I know the benefit is so great and amazing. I want that. I want it. Is that selfish? No. That's just saying, okay, God, you give me a promise? I want that. How do I get it? How do I get that promise? Well, just see what I say. Okay, but I'm struggling to be merciful. I'll help you. <laughs> I'll drag you. I'll drag you along uh, while you walk and while you struggle and while you stumble. I'll, I'll pick you up. I'll help you. That's what I see in Matthew chapter 5. That, that, that's the blessings that I see as I read this. And I'm going to challenge you guys to read this, to memorize it, to understand it. Next week we're going to be talking about blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. See God? Being pure in heart so you can see God? I hope you're here to go through it uh, Go through it with me as we, as we look at the promises here. And when you recognize a weakness, that may be God just knocking on your door and uh, asking you, hey, can I come in and help you? <laughs> can, I, can I come in and, and kind of fine-tune you a little bit? Now, what an amazing God we serve. Uh, that's all I have this morning. Communion is Dennis. All right. Will you say a blessing on the food as well? If you can remember. Thank you.